because I can sit in the jungle with ants walking across my arm all day and be in bliss with my feet in the mud naked just sitting there. But what about when I'm on 20th and Pico or, 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 you know, or in the parking lot, you know, and somebody's honking at me, you know, like what then? How do I sustain that? So there has to be tools. So that's where this, this medicine gave me information about yoga. Hello, welcome, namaste, bienvenidos to a new chapter of Now Serving Love. We dedicate this time to talk to individuals who have chosen to use their talents and their voice to uplift the collective consciousness we are extremely blessed to be with you today. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Now Serving Love. It's always a great pleasure to be able to connect with all of you through this channel. My deepest wish that all of you are doing well, great, healthy, strong, optimistic, patient and open to the infinite possibilities that we're experiencing with this unique time in life. Today's episode, truly very special, very touching. Miguel Ramator is um, someone I met about 12 years ago, uh, as he described in the podcast. First time we met at one of my yoga sessions. And from that, I've seen the evolution, the blossoming of a beautiful soul. Born and raised in L.A., Miguel shared with us, how was it to, to grow in the 70s, the 80s here in Los Angeles? His love for music, introduction to hip-hop scene, and what unfolded in a deep spiritual journey for him. A heart full of grace, really feel deeply honored to not only know Miguel, but haven't had the chance to record this, this beautiful life, life story, life transformation, and uh, be able to offer it to, to you. May this be uh, uplifting, joyful, and above all, loving conversation for you to enjoy. Latino in the house, my brother, Miguel Rama Torres. Hello, hello, namaste. Namaste, como estas hermano? Muy bien, muy bien, gracias. Brother, I've been, I've been, uh, when I started the podcast a long time ago, at the beginning of the year, um, there was a list of guests that wanted, and you were one of the, the main ones. Oh, wow. So I'm so glad that even with all this that is happening around, we have a chance now to actually make it, make it real. Well, let me just say that I am deeply, deeply honored. Uh, whether I'm on the list or not, just being here in the room with you is a deep, deep honor. And, and being on your podcast is even even more amazing. So thank you. Thank you for uh, having it's, me. It's, uh, it's nothing but a pleasure, brother. Um, I saw you 
your most uh, recent post. You just got a BMX. Yeah. 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 I just got a BMX bike, a Harl BMX bike. Harl. Yeah. Yeah. You you know about BMX? Oh yeah. 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 Oh. I used to. I used to. Um, my brother and I. We used to uh, race. Oh. It was funny. I told the story. We uh, there was a team that it was a team of like the cool guys. Remember that movie, uh, Karate Kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the 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 main guy, and then there was the other the other band of the guy yeah. that were like the cool guys. Yeah, the, the skeleton outfit. Yeah, those guys. So <laughs> this team was kind of like the skeleton guys. Um, so one day, my brother and I went to this factory in downtown, and where they actually made those pants. There were special pants for like when you raced. Yeah, they have the puffy thing yeah, and the, the padding. Red, yeah, it's super thick nylon stuff, and we make. Uh, pants they were actually the uniform of like the skeleton you know team and we go to the racetrack and as soon as we get there like five guys comes and they're like you guys are not part of the team you can't wear those pants <laughs> but um but yeah we used to be big time into bmx that is super cool well i'll tell you i want to put a team together well sign me in I if love you're anything. in it let's do it brother. anything yeah. that has two, two two wheels i'm 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 in one of the things that I've been doing is getting back into the things that I love because we have the time, you know, we're always thinking we don't have the time. We don't have the time. And then here's the time. So I, what I, you know, one of the things I've been doing with my time, you know, my wife as well, we've been utilizing it to educate ourselves, to go back to things that we love, you know, to, to spend time together, to do things out in nature and things like that. And, um, and one of the things about the BMX scene is that, you know, I was thinking like, why do we stop doing the things we love? Why did I stop riding my BMX bike? You know, I think w one of the reasons was that my brother's bike got stolen. So then I didn't have a riding partner anymore. So then I was like, okay. But, you know, you start thinking, why ain't, why am I not doing the things that I love? Because I'm too old? Like, well, yeah, that, that, that's one of the beautiful things of, of this space that, that the universe has given us. Like you say, uh, going back to that, you see... Um, there's like social media where like famous, I remember like seeing recently like a, one of those famous soccer players and football players and they're like, I always wanted to learn how to play the, the, the piano. So they're now taking lessons online on how to play the piano. Um, so like you say, yeah, it's, it's a great time to, to just go back to, to the roots, to what yeah. we love, man. And then BMX, wow, you know, I remember it was, it was the Harl, it was the Hutch. The Hutch was like the, yeah. the fancy one, right? Yeah. Uh, there was a, I have the mongoose, super goose. Super goose. Do you ever saw the video? Um, I remember this guy, I remember the, the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, maybe you, I was a little bit earlier than you, but there was a, a video of this guy. He had a, a bike, it was the brand is Quahara. Oh. And the Quahara is a, a, a purple bike. His name was Eddie Fiola. Ah. And Eddie Fiola used to wear this helmet with a, with a mohawk thing. You know, I remember and, and he was the one who was like, what's it called? The ramp that is like a... The half pipe. The half pipe. Yeah. And he was one of the few ones that like will come out of the half pipe and do the, you know, the the table yeah, thing. And it was like incredible. Like never seen before uh, footage of something like that. So there was one, only one story in, in Bogota uh, where you can get all the BMX stuff and there was a screen. And when this video came out, everybody went crazy because you never, we've never seen anything like that. Yeah. And it's really amazing, you know, because I, I, I grew up in Santa Monica. Uh, the last many years, we lived in Rancho Park, which is just outside of Santa Monica. And 
I, I went to, when I got into the VMXing thing just a month ago about, you know, I ordered the bike and I was like, am I crazy? I don't know. Man. Bike came, I built it and everything. And then I was like, you know, I need to find out where to ride. So I went to Google and I, and I typed in, you know, bike tracks around here and nothing was coming up. What was coming up was like, you know, the, the, the skateboard parks where you can go and, you know, the concrete stuff. But I wanted like some dirt tracks. So I kept kind of Googling. And interestingly enough, what popped up is that BMXing started in Rancho Park. <laughs> underneath where I live. Wow. Like on that land, there's a school built there. There's exposition where the train runs, where all this this huge area, it used to be just dirt tracks. And BMXing started there in the late 60s and early 70s or something like that. And so I was a little bit like, wow, like I felt like I was channeling something, you know, it was very interesting. But um, and so I just wanted to share that. But uh, it's it's so cool to know that BMXing started out there. I, I never knew that. I just started started somewhere else, you know, but it started out here. And I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah, it's cool. I never I, I no clue. huh? Uh, you remind me also there was a the movie came out uh, BMX Bandits. Oh, you remember that movie? Yeah, and Rad, remember? Yeah, Rad? oh yeah, oh, yeah. That's, that's like so kind of like movies that shape your own like yeah. youth, right? Yeah, because you were to emulate this this characters. Yeah. Um, so you were born, your local LA, yeah, born and and raised. Yeah, I was born in a UCLA hospital, and I was raised in Santa Monica. The one in in Santa Monica? No, right here in Westwood, actually. Yeah. Okay. Before the before it was in Santa Monica. The UCLA hospital in Santa Monica used to be called Santa Monica Hospital. That's that's where our daughter Aluna was just born. So beautiful. What yeah. a, an amazing place to be born. What an amazing city to be born in. Yeah, LA. Angelino. Angelino. So you were born in, in Los Angeles. Yes. And you guys lived in Santa Monica. Yes. That was, uh, you were born what year? I was born in 1976, July 28th. 1976. Oh, so we're not that far. We're only three years apart. I thought you were like much younger than. No, no, three. Years might apart. be, might be my 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 really hard, you know, lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> Tough. Um, so you grew up in the seventies in Santa Monica. In the seventies, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I was born in '76 and um, born in UCLA, and my parents lived on 20th and Pico in Santa Monica. And so I spent the first nine months of my life on 20th and Pico. Uh, and from that, from nine months, my parents moved to Mexico. They went back to my dad's hometown. My, my mom was from Guatemala and my dad is from Mexico, from Jalisco, San Miguel El Alto, Jalisco. And so... I like how you say that, San Miguel El Alto, Jalisco. San Miguel El way. Alto, Jalisco. <laughs> <laughs> A los jalisqueños. So, um, yeah, so my dad was... Is from San Miguel Lato, a little town in the middle of Mexico, up in the in the heights. Los Altos means the heights, so it's up in the like up in the heights, and there's a lot of towns up there, and these towns are really interesting towns, in Spanish Spanish towns, sort of, you know. And so, we went to live there, and we lived there till I was almost four. My brother was born in Mexico. My little brother Marvin was born in Querétaro, which is another state. So we went down there. My dad was working, and then he he uh, he got promoted and went to a different state, which is right south of uh, of Jalisco. And he was working there. And then my brother was born. So my brother's Mexican. My little brother's Mexican, and um, and so uh, at, just before I turned four, my parents decided to come back to LA. So they came back to Santa Monica, and back they went to the same spot. We went. And well, when my mother left there, you know. 
they, she left the apartment to my aunt. So my aunt and my uncle moved in there and they were living there. So when my mom and dad got back three years later, you know, that wasn't their place anymore. Yeah. So they had to find somewhere new to live. So they moved to Venice. So I lived in Venice for uh, two years. So from like the age four to, to actually from four to seven or so, I lived in Venice. And um, I lived on Fifth and Suns, uh, Fifth and Rose where the Venice Family Clinic is. Just behind the Venice Family Clinic, there's an alley. And there used to be three yellow bungalows right there. They're gone. Now it's an apartment building. Well, now it's all the Google and all the tech yeah. and now, all now that stuff. Yeah. Do you remember, do you have any memories of those times? That, like, Absolutely. Venice? How was it? It was, it was amazing. But it was, it was a different world too. You know, it was a different Santa Monica. When I grew up, you know, Santa Monica and Venice was, a, was just a different, it was a different town than what it is now. You know, um, there was always wealth in Santa Monica. There's always been wealth there. And there was, there's always been poverty. But I think that the new Santa Monica doesn't show a lot of the poverty side of the neighborhood or, you know, or the low income. You know, it doesn't show a lot of that. So people don't have, have no idea that this, there's even a neighborhood, what we call a, a vecindad or a, uh -huh. a hood or a neighborhood. People have no idea that Santa Monica has a neighborhood. You know, people know that Venice has a neighborhood. You know, you go out there and people let you know there's a neighborhood there. And um, and do you um, did you grow up in the wealthy side or you grew up in the low income side? I grew up on the low income side, 20th and Pico. Um, it's very interesting because you know it's a it's a huge discussion actually. Just speaking about the way that Santa Monica uh, was built, because at one point. Um, from my understanding and from people that I know that are educated in this and know this is it used to be uh, African-American and Latino Hispanic neighborhoods, all of it. And people had money. People were wealthy, you know. And as time moved on and people started seeing the beauty of the beach area and what it could do for real estate, business, money and that kind of stuff, um, People started moving in on on locations, neighborhoods, and and the people of the community had to start finding other places to live. You know, this has been so. Like, I know there's a lot of talk of gentrification and things of that nature. You know, and um, but I I grew up seeing this. It's not new. It's nothing that just happened from the year 2000 to here or in the 90s. This has been happening since the 80s. You know, in the 80s, it was a different place over there. It was um. um Uh, it's been happening since ever. Since forever, you know. Since <laughs> speaking talk, 400 years ago. <laughs> talk to the talk to the English. Right? Exactly. That every place they went, they liked it, so they decided to take over. That's right? it. Yeah. It's been going on forever. It's been going on forever, and so you know, um, there was a different charm. There's also there was also a lot of violence too. There was it was a different world, you know. There was violence on the streets. You so know? you um, you were in Venice until you were seven years old. Yeah. And then you guys moved from Venice? Then or? we moved back to Santa Monica. Okay. Back to 20th and Pico. Back to the same apartment building, but not in the same apartment. We now were upstairs from that apartment. So I grew up pretty much in, in an apartment that overlooks the corner of 20th and Pico. And on that corner, you have a gas station, a Campos Tacos, a Burger King, and a liquor store. So this was my view. <laughs> Beautiful. All... all Conscious, healthy lifestyle. Yeah. yeah, and still there. I, I the Burger King still the gas station. It's all there. It's same thing. And all the same stuffs being sold. You know, in the same area, in the same community. And um, 
you know, you'd think that, you know, that Burger King would be something different, you know, tender greens or something. But, you know, people like it, I guess, in the community. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I learned from looking out my window, I learned a lot. Like, I, I consider myself, you know, at, at the core, I consider myself an artist. I know you're an artist. You're an amazing artist. You do canvases, paintings, and stuff like that. And, and I consider myself that type of artist as well at the core. And everything that I do is, is a direct expansion of that. It's, it's something that, that comes that stems from that. And one of my, my, my mother used to draw a lot. She used to pencil sketch. She used to have sketchbooks and she would draw pencil, uh, pencil sketch. But one of the things that led me into art and made me really want to do it was I would look out my window and there was Burger King there and there was a wall. And th this, this wall faced my bedroom window. And every night, every night, I could look out the window and see some guys come up and do graffiti all over the thing. The next night, it would be somebody else, and they would do graffiti all over the thing. Next day, it would be somebody else, they would do graffiti. And people were crossing each other out, putting their names. There was, there, was a, there was a dialogue happening on the wall. And the dialogue was only for those that were aware of it. And those dialogues are still happening on the walls, right? So you have a live shows every night. Live shows of, of expressions of people's lives. And they're telling you who they are and what they're doing in, in this area. And it's on the wall. Because in this area already, there was uh, like gangs, gangs and stuff. Yeah, gangs was and, that and the, graffiti artists and all types of different was things. Was that the... In that area was the the area of the the blots and the in, in our area you we had you had we have Mexican gangs and we had uh, crip gangs. So you start to be exposed to like the uh, you know the street life, um, gangs, graffiti, yeah, the music, yeah, street life and, and and yeah and music too because also in this parking lot the the guys from the neighborhood either it was like the 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 the, the homeboys. Or the brothers, whoever they were, they would they would be in the parking lot. And, you know, this is this is how different it was. At three in the morning, there'd be five, six cars parked in the Burger King parking lot playing music full blast. Like, like full blast. And there was no police coming. Nobody was coming. So the music was playing for three, four hours. And you're, you're in your bedroom trying to sleep, but you're hearing the music. So, yeah, so the music was being presented, this live show, this graffiti on the walls happening, these dialogues of things interacting. So I started pencil sketching what I saw on the walls. So I started drawing every, everybody who was writing. I was writing what they were writing. And I started copying what they were doing and starting to understand who they were. And then I started mimicking their writing styles, their lettering This is like an introduction into the art world, sort of, you know? So I started mimicking their graphics, their letters that they were using. Mm -hmm. And I started learning how to do the different styles, the block letters, the cursive, the old English, this writing, bad, even bad writing. I was like, okay, this is how you write bad, <laughs> you know? And all these different things. And so... This that. is incredible. This, this is like, it reminds me of the, the book, A Liars, where I actually, have you read that book, A Liars? No. So basically what, what he does is like he looks at the premises of what was happening in the culture at the time and why this group of individuals or or someone by itself, how they emerge and do they emerge. For instance, like the Beatles. The Beatles went to Germany before they were the Beatles really. And they went to Germany to Hamburg because there was a lot of strip clubs. 
And at that time, the strip clubs had live music. So they were playing something about eight, 10 hours a day in these clubs, seven days a week for an entire year. So in the culture in that moment, they had that opportunity for one year to play every day for 10 hours before an audience. And after that, when they go back to England, of course, they're super tired because they've been playing, you know, nonstop. So it's sort of like this social phenomenon that was happening at that time. Certain individuals shape their entire life. So it sounds like you had the opportunity culturally, all this thing was happening. You were exposed to that and that helped you shape your art. Yeah. Yeah. And very much so. So it, it was, um, I was being taught art without knowing it. I was learning. So while most kids might have been learning art in a different way, I was observing it and receiving it in the way that it was handed to me, you know, and, and, and I, I didn't know that what it was or what, you know, I just thought it was cool. And, you know, my cousin, my, my aunt and uncle lived downstairs. So my cousins grew up downstairs. So they were also looking out the same windows and I could, I could go on the floor of my, of my window and go, Hey, and my cousins could hear me. And so we would communicate through the floor and say, Hey, look, someone's writing on the wall again. Mm -hmm. And we'd both copy it. And then the next day we'd share the drawings and that's how we started sharing our art. And then we both, then we started taking what we saw and taking those letters of somebody's name and then making it my name. And then my cousin made his name. And then we were now doing our names with the letters. And right around that time, we got influenced also by graffiti in New York City. Subway art, which was colorful graffiti. It was more artistic. I, I was looking at a lot of gang writing. It wasn't really art, like in, in that type of sense. It, it, was, it is and it was, but, but not in the sense of what somebody else might consider art, you know? Let me ask you, was that uh, the whole breakdance scene... Was that hand to hand with graffiti, or graffiti came before? Yes. Or it was all. It's I all remember. Very... I remember the. I, I used to break dance, and and I remember that somehow the the break dance was always related to graffiti. I remember. Yeah. Well, there's elements of of break dancing is part of hip hop, right? So hip hop is a is a culture, right? And so break dancing is a part of hip hop. So hip hop has, in order for it to be hip hop. It has to have a certain amount of elements. And one of the elements in hip hop is graffiti, breakdancing, or b-boying, right? We call it b-boying. That's breakdancing, graffiti, rapping, and, and DJing. So these are elements of hip hop, right? All of it. All of it is elements of hip hop. And so I was influenced by the hip hop that was starting to cultivate in the world you know, because there was people who were in the 80s or so, you know, we're talking like 1983, 1984. This is like, I mean, when I think about it, I'm like, well, this is, a, this is quite a while ago. Very different world. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, I'm conscious of it. I remember, I remember being um, um, influenced by the graffiti, right? I remember being at, at, at the Santa Monica Pier. This must have been 1985. At the Santa Monica Pier, my mom took me and my brother to the pier and there was people kind of like now there's, you know, like, if, you know, people that uh, you have street performers and stuff. And we walked down the pier. And when we got down to the bottom, there was three guys, three African-American dudes break dancing, right? They had a crowd around them, like hundred people. 
And there used to be bumper cars. I don't know if the bumper cars are still there, but the bu- it was right in front of the bumper cars. And I, I remember exactly what the guys looked like. I remember exactly what they did. Move for move, exactly what they did. I remember standing there and it changed my life. These guys were not just breakdancing, right? Because West Coast and East Coast has different styles of breakdancing. These guys were doing a lot of pop locking, which is upper body movement. Right. Instead of they weren't hitting the floor so much and spinning, they were doing upper body pop locking. So, I, so I guess I was more of the East Coast because I was all, all doing all the spinning on the floor. That was yeah. So like that was more East Coast influence, okay. and eventually it all mixed in, and it was the same thing. But on the West Coast, you had it was a little bit more like just a little bit of a different flow. And I remember going and seeing these guys, and it was amazing. I'll tell you why it was amazing because I never one I'd never seen anything like it in my life. What these guys were doing was they did a skit. So as I arrived and we moved through the people, what I saw was a, was a two guys that were just kind of moving. They were next to each other and they were kind of moving just their arms. Bah, bah, bah. And then about 10 feet away from them was another guy. And this guy was dancing. And then this guy pretended out to pull out like a, a joint or a cigarette or something. And he pretended to light it. And then he was dancing and pretending. And at that moment, the other two guys... They were police. They were dancers, but they were now acting as police. So they came and pretended they were arresting the guy. And they, they turned him around. And they, but the whole time they were dancing and breaking, but there was this skit happening. And I was like, whoa. And from that little, from that skit that we saw, we walked up the pier, up the hill, right to the Third Street Promenade that was known before as the Santa Monica Mall. It was the Santa Monica Mall. We went to the Santa Monica Mall. And on where the Cineplex Odeon is now, the, the first movie theater that you come off, off of Broadway, just past it, there was a little hallway. And next to that hallway was a place called the Music Box, where you would go and you, and this is where you got your music. And there was cassette tapes and records. And that's what, that's what it was then, right? And you'd get there and the cassette was just a little, little thing about the size of a cell phone, but it came in a box It was like two feet long and one foot wide and one cassette tape. And so that's how they stored them so people wouldn't steal them, you know? So I remember going there and I remember walking in. I Because re- when we were at the pier, I told my mom. And, it, you know, my mom, my mom has passed away. But one of the things that I really, really, you know, admire about my mother is that she always supported everything we did, whether it was, whatever it was, she always supported it and let us be free and let us explore. And I remember looking at my mom and saying to her, mom, I want to do that. And I want that kind of music. She, we walked up the pier, went straight to the music box. We walked in and she went up to the guy. I don't know what she asked the guy. The guy at the counter walked up. He took us over to the rap section or whatever it was at that time. And he said, this is what you want right here. And he pulled out this tape and on it was a guy breakdancing, dressed in black and he had a hat on and everything. You couldn't see his face because he was all here like a mask on and he was just, and he was just there and he was breakdancing. And on that cassette tape was like some of the most incredible original like music I've, that has ever been, you know, the message was on there, you know, there's some really good songs on there. And, and I opened up the tape and I remember opening up, there was a poster inside and inside was It said New York City Breakers. And it had inside, it had little pictures of how to do a breakdancing move. So it was like 50 pictures. And, and if you did the whole picture, you'd know how to do a move. And that was it. That was like the beginning of it. From there, it was 
into records. You know, from there, my mom would take me back to their to that place, and I started buying records. You know, Run DMC, The Fat Boys, Ice T. You know, Roxanne Shante, like real, real old school. What we call old school hip hop. That you know, you listen to it now, it probably doesn't sound so cool to some people, but it was really cool music at the time, and it was fun music. It's not what people might consider hip hop these days because hip hop and rap is very different. You know, hip hop and rap is very different. So you have hip hop is, is has the elements. Remember, it has the graffiti, the rap. It has like it has substance. Right. And, and rap is just rapping. You know, it could be anything. Not that it, there's no substance to it, but it's just an element of this. You know, and so when you rap, you could rap about whatever you want. But if it's hip hop, it has to be it has to have a level of positivity and it has to have a level of artistic vision to it. it has to have a, a some stability and substance to it the content of what you're saying how you're saying what you're delivering what kind of message are you carrying you know and so that's what was really cool about hip-hop that at, at a young age here was something that was able to wrangle my youthful mind that was you know also beginning to become part of and see the street life but then here was this one thing this this music that was able to to, to show me a, a different view, to show me art. And so... So you were able to discover the music aspect of, of life um, when you were, again, like a teen and, and, and the high school years. All of it was hand in hand. The graffiti, the graffiti art, right? Uh, the skateboarding. Venice is a perfect example of what was happening there. You had graffiti, you had gangs, you had surfers, you had skateboarders, you had punk rockers. And, and everybody was hardcore. You know, the surfer was just as badass as the gangster. The skateboarder was just as badass as, you know, it was, it was, it was the 80s. It was, it was the, the 80s. 80s. These guys had to, you know, it, you know, and the reason is, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say you got to be a badass. My point is that if you wanted to surf Venice Beach in the 80s, you had to be able to hold your own to enter the water. You can't just show up with your surfboard. It's not... You, They're not going to even let you in the water. And if you're in the water, you better hope you can make it out. And it was the same thing for skateboarding. Who are you coming up, showing up with your skateboard? You know, and who are you showing up here? So it was, it was a very different time, you know, and, um, and, you know, it was being run by the locals, you know, mm -hmm. so it was a very interesting time. And so you got what, what they call that. Did, did you got jumped in? <laughs> you get jumped You know, you isn't, get, isn't that what they call uh, yeah, like when, when, when you, they, when you get into they beat a the game, crap out of you and, and then you basically surrender and it's like, okay, now I'm part of the gang. Oh yeah. Like if, if you're going to be in the gang, there's different ways, you know, people, one of the ways is sometimes you get jumped in, you have to fight a couple of other guys from the gang. And what it is, is you're, you're showing these guys that you're strong, you know? They want to see how much you got, you know, are you going to cry? Because if these guys are the enemy and they come to beat you up, how quick are you going to be, you know, you're going to turn on them? Yeah, you know? sort, of, sort of like the barometer where they use to measure how much macho within you. Right. So they're measuring. It, that's exactly what it is. It's a measurement. Sometimes there's even a time frame, like one minute, you know, three guys on one guy for one minute. What's going to happen here, you know? And from there, where you, where you uh, ended up going? I, I come out of high school and I had a really dear friend who, who had a plan for us, a really good friend. And, and, and he had a plan. He said, I got a plan. I know what we're going to do when we get out of school. And I said, what? He said, 
listen, we're going to go to this this college over here and we're going to learn, you know, uh, construction, this, that, and we're going to get our, our, our we're going to get our license for, for contracting and we're going to have a contracting business. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, and this is a really good friend of mine. He knew what was up, you know? And, uh, and so I, uh, I was like, let's do it, you know? And so here we come out of high school and then, you know, the plan was going to start like that following year and, and, and he got killed, you know, he got shot and, and he, and he died. So then I was like, Oh, whoa, what's my plan? What was, <laughs> what was, what was that? like for you because i remember my best friend also throughout high school uh i think it was just a year after we we graduated as well he he died in a car accident and that that really shifted a lot of aspects of my life how was that for you that your really well, good friend like, all of a sudden at that young age is it's gone yeah well you know as a he was like my best friend, you know, and it wasn't the first friend I'd lost and I lost many friends already at that point, you know, growing up in the environment where I had, it. but, but his was a, a different case. He wasn't a gang member. He wasn't really, you know, he was in, in the street life a little bit, but he w wasn't about that, anything like that. He was a real positive individual. He knew what he wanted. He was really wise for his age. And as kids, he was really smart. All the older people were like trying to hang out with him because he was smarter than they were. And so, um, It was um, it was devastating to lose him. It, to lose him was really, really hard. He was just a, an amazing person, and he taught me so much about myself. And he had he he taught me a lot about confidence. You know, when I didn't have so much confidence, like he kind of allowed and helped me develop it without telling me that he was doing that. Everything that I knew about him that was amazing, it immediately became part of me, and it and it's still there. Like like what? The, like like confidence being a leader, you know, being a leader, standing up for people and not giving a damn what somebody else thinks about it. There's certain things that he did that he, there was, he was giving me examples just by being my friend and me being around him and him being the, the person that was doing things. And I would observe and I didn't realize what I was absorbing. When he passed away, I started realizing what I was absorbing from him because I, I could see it and I could feel it. And I, and sometimes to this day, To this day, I'll ask myself, what would he do at this moment? And sometimes that helps me make the decision because I channel him or I, I, I bring him into my life. You know, I bring him in and then, you know, it's there. The answer is there. You know, it's, it's consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, he had consciousness at the time and, and I tap into that consciousness. You know, and sometimes it, I tap into it. I recognize it as something that, that, that he may have brought to me. So did you continue with, with the, with the plan? Do you ended up getting your license and I knew nothing about it. You know, uh, he had an uncle and his uncle had a successful company and his uncle was like, don't worry guys, I got you. You know, he was going to, he was going to mentor us and he was going to guide us. And, and it was, it would have worked out really well, but you know, it, it, things changed, you know, life had a different plan. And so, um, I didn't pursue that any longer. Always in the back of my head is something that I could probably attempt at some point. Um, at this moment in time, uh, when he when he passed, I had just started to um, write lyrics and raps, and I had been for maybe about six seven months writing lyrics and raps, and I never got a chance to share my songs with my friend before he passed away. I remember one day I was going to say, "Hey, bro, let me share this with you," and it was funny because. He was just a joker and everything. And I'll, I'll tell you what he said. It was really funny. He said, uh, 
I had, you know, remember this guy, somebody who was my age and everything, but he had this confidence and this level of being that was just amazing. And, and, and just being around him was amazing. So here I am, I'm with him one day and I'm like, you know what? I've been writing raps for six, seven, eight months. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sing one of these raps for him to see what he thinks. And I said, Hey bro. And he says, yeah. And we're driving and we're driving around and he had a truck and we're driving around. And I said, bro, I want to share something with you. And he's like, what? I said, uh, uh, I got a, I got a rap. I wrote a rap. And he said, man, the only thing you know how to rap are tamales. <laughs> and that was it. I didn't share with him. After that, we just laughed and we laughed and I said, oh, I'll share with him another day. And then it never, it never happened. But so then that was an interesting thing for me to never be able to share with him. So then I, I started just cultivating that instead. I started cultivating the, the music that I was doing, the, these lyrics that I had been writing. I started cultivating them and trying to, what can I do with this? You know, um, I, I was seeing people out there doing, performing and doing things, but nobody from, from my side of town, you know, not really, not anybody around where I was. There's a few people that were doing things and rapping and things like that. And they were kind of like inspirations to me. But as what I was doing, nobody was really doing it. So I started cultivating that. And as far as the schooling went, well, as far as the schooling, I decided, well, let me go to Santa Monica College. It's one of the best colleges in California. I live across the street from it. Why not? So here I go to Santa Monica College. I enroll in, in, in you know, the basic classes, you know, the English and the math. And then like a class, what I want to do is so I enrolled in an art class. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do art, you know, I wanted to paint, I wanted to do art, art, whatever I could do with art, you know, and enroll in the class. So here I am. And at this point, my parents had already been divorced, you know, uh, two, three years, three, three years or so. Uh, my mom was, it was single income. My mom was just working all the time. I was pretty much raising my brother because my mom was working to, to raise us. And I was at home with my brother, you know, cooking and doing whatever. Like it was just him and me. So we're cooking and we're uh, doing whatever we can until mom gets home. And I'm aware of the fact that there's not a lot of money at home, you know. And at the same time, mom's doing things like buy me a BMX bike that costs way too much money. But I have no idea. She's just doing what, what she can for her kids. And she's not buying one. She's buying two. Because she's buying my brother one too, you know? And we have no idea what she's doing. We don't understand the struggle. We just got the bike and all oh, cool. Well, we, we, you know, we, we see what's happening and you kind of get it, but you don't know the struggle that this person's going through and what they're doing for you. But I was getting a little older and I started noticing that it, what was happening, right? So I went to college, Santa Monica College, and first day of art class, I remember it was at the Santa Monica airport where the hangars are. And I remember I, I went into the hangar, sat in the classroom, and the teacher goes, all right, everybody, how's everybody doing? And then they get the, the teacher goes up to the chalkboard and says, all right, these are all the materials that you're going to need <laughs> by next Monday. Mm. And, she, and she flips the chalkboard over, and there's a hundred things written on there. And, it, you know, I think she goes on to say it'll cost you about 400-something dollars. You know, 400-something dollars back then was a lot of money for a single parent. So I remember just sitting there. And about 10 minutes in, I just closed my books and I just stood up and I walked out and I never went back. And for me, I, I knew that <laughs> I thought I was helping my mom out, you know, who knows what would have happened if I would have stayed. It probably would have, 
more than likely, that was the thing to do. You know, I should have stayed at the same time. The guidance wasn't there. You know, the support wasn't there. Mom was doing her best. And, you know, mom's working. She can't work, support us, and then be there constantly. So, so my choice at that moment was, you know what? I can't do this right here. I better, I better get out of here. I got to go do something in life. And then so when my brother gets to this point, he can excel. And so that was my consciousness at that time. And so my schooling, that, that was my schooling. So from that moment, I started, I was already working. I've been working since a young age, paper routes at age 11, 12, and then little, little, I was working, you know, illegally at 15 already at a, at a houseware store in the mall. You know, I was supposed to be 18. I was already working. And, and so, so my thing was like, let me, I got to go work, make money, help mom do this. And at the same time, you know, write my music and see what I can do with that. And so that, that's the direction I so went where, in. So where, where do you go? What do you start doing there? So, well, you know, I had, like I said, I had a lot of, a lot of jobs. I was doing lots of things for, for different, different ages. I mean, I was delivering sandwiches on a bicycle. I was working at Victoria's Secrets. I was, uh, I worked at Sears changing tires. You know, I was, uh, um, you know, the, the just like so many things. Whatever you can. Whatever you I could do, I was doing it. Like, boom, this, that. Oh, I was selling this. I was doing that. Going here, doing that. And, you know. And on the side, you start writing your music, doing your Writing band. music, you know, writing music and and developing and figuring out what that was. Aligning myself with other people that were doing music. And, you know, and at that time, it wasn't a popular thing to do. To be a rapper wasn't a popular thing. Your friends didn't think you... Even my own friends were like, what are you doing? Like, that's not, you don't do that. Like, you're not going to get anywhere. Like, it wasn't a thing to do. It wasn't a popular thing or anything. So I was kind of going, I was doing something that nobody wanted to do. And no, nobody had any energy to do. Nobody thought was cool. And, and and I was doing it. And so I just kept at it. And, and I really loved it. You know, I started getting into the poetry aspect of it and what I was doing. And, and then I started getting into the storytelling. Oh, wow. There's power here. Like, I can tell a story about what's happening in this world, in my life, you know? And, and so I started rapping about what was happening around me, you know, drugs, street life, crime, graffiti. These were the things that were happening. And so I started rapping about, about all these things, you know, and, and, and I started going in that direction, you know, and, and after a while that started getting popular. I, 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 I created a rap group. I got one of my friends involved. I got my cousin who lived downstairs to be our DJ. My brother was making beats for us. And I remember our very first performance was at a place called 14 Below on Santa Monica Boulevard and 14th Street. The place is not there no more. The, the, the building's there, but it was like a club. And we did this huge performance and there was hundreds of people there. And it was like, after that performance, it was like, whoa, like so many people showed up. So after that performance, I started doing more performances and more people with, this, with the same same group. Yeah, with with my with my cousin. What was with, the the name of the group? So I had a group. I started a group called the Second State, the Second State. And your your like stage name was what? And my stage name at the time was my graffiti name, and my graffiti name was Sight S I T E. So I used to that was the name I would write from as a graffiti artist, Sight. I would sign all my artwork with that name at the bottom, Sight. And then people start to identify you in the hip hop world as Sight. Yeah, so people started recognizing me as Sight. And so I added Raw, R-A-W, Raw, Sight Raw. Sight Raw. Sight Raw, because that was a cut. So it was from taking me from a graffiti artist now into a hip hop artist. And I added the Raw so that people would 
in hip hop, there's this element of rawness that people like, right? It's like this gritty rawness. So the raw was me letting them know that you're going to get what you want. <laughs> Listen to this and you're going to get it. You know, the vision is raw, sight raw, right? And so, um, so that's the path you started to, to walk. The and that's the path I started to the walk. The hip hop. Yeah. And it all came from, the second state came from a book. My mom gave me a book one time. She, she stopped at a garage sale. She bought a book for a quarter. She came home. She said, you, you told me recently you wanted to read books. And I said, yeah. She said, here's a book for you. And she hands me a book. And I looked at it and I said, what, what is this? And I just threw it to the side. And a few days later, I grabbed it and I looked at it and I said, whoa. I started reading the book. And the, the name of the book is um, Journeys Out of the Body by Robert A. Monroe. And it was it was an amazing book about this doctor who started documenting his out-of-body experiences and then cross-referencing what he saw by documenting it, cross-referencing with what he thought he saw by going out and checking if those things were actual. And he started seeing that, you know, through his studies that he was leaving his body, recognizing things outside of his body. He would come back into his body, documented, then go out and look, and those things were just as he saw them. So it was about the second state, you know, a different, a different realm, sort of. So that's what this book was about, Journeys Out of Body, The Second State. So I saw this, and when I saw the name The Second State, I said, that's, that's going to be the name of my rap group, The Second State. And that's going to be the name of our first album, Journeys Out of the Body. And so then I started conceptualizing the street life that I had been rapping about now and, and turning it and, and, and now finding topics and now finding substance and finding things to talk about and then keeping the direction there. You know, like I had a song called I Reawoke and the whole song is about I'm in a dream. And when I awake, I, I realize that my hands are, are still hot and my feet have blisters on them. But I was just in a dream. How can this be? So like that, you know, so but the concept, you know, the concept of of, of something and staying with that concept and then trying to tell a story or a message with it, that all started developing and, and that's where it began. And, and it's from this book. And so then um, my rap group just started kind of getting recognized out here in, in the West Side area first by different people who were also doing music. And then little by little, we started, you know, doing stuff in Hollywood. And that's when things started kind of getting really cool and taking off. We started doing the, you know, the Hollywood clubs. I mean, I, I got to do the House of Blues. I got to perform at the House of Blues many times. I think like four times. You know, I, I got to perform at, at, at the Roxy. So you got to start doing the Sunset Strip. So started doing that. And then that was interesting because here I was a person who was hanging out on my, in my neighborhood. You know, I was in my, on my, literally on my street, 20th and Pico. If you wanted to find me, that's where you find me. On 20th by the liquor store, outside of my house, just like... Eating a Burger King. <laughs> maybe, yeah, eating Burger King. You know, that's where you would find me. I'd be on 20th and Pico. And and my boys were there. My whole team was there. We were all there. And everybody from all in the different apartment buildings that grew up in the neighborhood, we always found ourselves. Every day we'd find ourselves. And, and that's where we were. All of a sudden, the music is saying, oh, come, come play at this place in Hollywood. And I'm like, great. So now I'm telling all my friends in the neighborhood, hey, let's go over here. And they're like, we ain't going anywhere. And I was like, huh? And I, that's when I started seeing that there was a type of personality that doesn't want to leave the neighborhood, that doesn't want to leave the block, that's just absolutely happy and comfortable there. And I, I realized at that moment that I wasn't, that I'm, I'm all about this block. I'm all about this neighborhood. I'm all about my people, but I'm ready to expand. I'm, I got to go. So I started 
going to different cities and, and performing and meeting other people who were doing similar things to me. And because of that, you know, our music started working out and, and people started listening to it. And we, and you know, the thing is, is it's interesting because we did a lot of shows, hundreds, hundreds of performances, hundreds of performances. And, and, and we never released an album. We released a couple of songs here and there. We're on an, we're on a gold, we're on somebody else's album. We're on a couple of other people's albums, but I'm sure also it was very different now, like now that you can release a, a song every day with your iPhone. It was really difficult then. Like you had to, it was all analog. So like you go to the studio, it was like, it was, if you wanted to record one single at the cheapest, it was going to cost you $700 or so at the cheapest, you know? And you, and, who had that? And, and then once you record that song, where are you going to put it? It's like, then you got to go press the records. Or like, yeah. yeah then you got to press records or tapes, which is another few thousand. And then you got to go try to sell them. So, So this is a different. So you guys started to get big, things started to expand. And, and then what happened with that? So it started to expand. And then from there, we met up with an, another group of friends who were also doing similar stuff. And we kind of teamed up. And um, there was a lot of people that I, a lot of people that, that I met along the way that were hel helping us or that were doing the same thing. And we all kind of became associates. Lots of little group rap groups and crews and and promoters and i mean i can there's so many to name them but like just so many different people and they were all kind of guiding the way and helping and and, and then we're kind of going in a certain direction and then we met this other group of guys who were doing the same thing and they're very similar to us and then we came together and then we started performing together as one big group and we started and then then we started touring so i was able to go on uh two nationwide tours um and and perform and do music um and that was and that was unbelievable and that was because of connecting with this other group and um and, you know we we went to a lot of states we went to a lot of towns we did a lot of big performances with a lot of people i, I started meeting other big hip-hop acts and and rock stars and different people like that in in the music world and and all of a sudden here i am i'm in this music world and it's all looking good and it's going good and things are great and you know but uh, slowly at the same time my my alcohol levels increasing i'm i'm now drinking more you know i'm i'm doing this i'm doing that i'm getting into drugs i'm doing you know drugs were always kind of there from a younger age because they were around but what were you doing um There was tons of stuff that I did. I did. I pretty like, much done like every what? drug around. You know. What were you doing at the time? You were drinking cocaine. Oh yeah, there was cocaine. There was a uh, alcohol of any type, beers and every type of level of alcohol. You know. And then there was uh, there was cocaine. There was crack coming around. There was PCP. There was a lot of stuff. There was a the whole nine yards. The whole nine. Everything was around, and you could be somewhere, and all that stuff is being used by different people, you know. And especially when you're now in the music world and touring and different stuff, you know, in the neighborhoods, this stuff is there too, and everybody's experimenting and doing the stuff. But now you're out here, you're you're with people who have influence, money, and they have drugs, you know. So that scene started getting a little a little much for me, and so I now. Um, Was it a place where, you know, I was like, you know, where is this going, you know, with, with all this stuff, you know, I have my rap group. And then at the same time, the music was going down. We're getting now close to the year 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. The music's going down because the digital stuff's happening. Things are changing, right? And I remember coming to the place where I was like, man, I don't know where this music's going. So kind of things like our group kind of dismantled. Not out of any negativity, it just kind of dismantled and it didn't work out. 
And so I moved on and, and I met up with one of my friends who was from the other group and, and we started doing a Spanish album. We, we started doing a rap album in Spanish. So the whole thing, and it, and it, and it was 26 songs all in Spanish, rap, but, but street rap, kind of what I was doing. And um, so I started moving now, still writing lyrics, but now into the Spanish stuff. And right around the same time this is happening, um, I find out that, that my mother is sick. And my mother um, gets liver cirrhosis. And so now it's like 2004, 2005 and when my mom gets sick. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, whoa. And now I'm like, holy smoke. So, uh, you know, I'm working. I'm doing like jobs. I'm now kind of doing production stuff. I'm working at this production studio, you know, as a studio manager. I'm kind of doing working with lights and cameras and stuff at the same time. And... I start kind of getting into that and, and now I'm kind of working and the music stuff is kind of on hold. My mom's sick and I'm kind of trying to figure out life. My mom's not able to work now and things are changing. You know, I'm living with my wife. We live elsewhere and, and, and my mom's living on 20th and Pico still. And I'm having to, to constantly get to her to see how she's doing. And then she's having a lot of hospital bouts where, you know, she's going to the hospital like every month. You know, sometimes you go to the hospital, she'll be there for eight, eight days. You know, so it was like, and it was happening for, for three years or so. It was happening constantly all the time. So my life just started changing where I didn't have time to do the music stuff anymore. So at this point, I'm kind of now trying to just stay afloat, trying to figure out what's happening in life. And on Christmas day of 2007, my mom passes away and my mom passes away. And I realized that, you know, the, the one person who knew who I truly was is, is now left the body. I realized at that moment that, you know, um, I had a lot, a lot to, to figure out and a lot to learn. And there was more out there in life that, that I needed to explore and, and learn about. And Is that know, when your journey into the <laughs> discovery of the practice of yoga? And so that's when it happened. Yeah, the discovery of the practice, right? I think... Yeah, this is sort of when it started happening. And, you know, I think that really as I was holding my mom's hand and she took her last breath and she took a deep inhale and her eyes rolled up to where what we call the third eye, right? Her eyes rolled up and then she just released. And as soon as she released, I remember holding her hand and I remember having the deep understanding that she was no longer there. And... I, 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 I knew that I had to change everything about who I was, but I didn't know what that was yet. No idea, no clue. So I, I, you know, I, I go to my wife who, my wife, Solana Prema, who is just an amazing, amazing, amazing person. I mean, she, she has always been there for me. We've been together for a long, long time and long relationships. This whole process that I've been speaking about from the age of 15, she's been there. She's seen this whole thing. She's, she's been part of it. She's been part of this journey with me. And my wife now, now she knows. She's the other person who knows who I am in this world. And she just, just came out and just became this person who started nurturing me and, and helping me and guiding me and helping me and, and just showing me, you know, your mother's always with you, you know, doing the things that, that, that no one had ever done for me really except my mother. And now my wife, who, who wasn't my wife at the time, you know, now, now she's now there for me and supporting me. And 
her father, who I who I love very much, so like as my as my own father, he um he came to me and he said, you know, I I I think that uh I think that it's time for you to drink ayahuasca. And I looked at him and I said, okay. Now at this point, this is 2007. I didn't really know what ayahuasca was. No, I don't think many people knew what ayahuasca was hey, at that point. W- w- with with that background, ayahuasca sounds like a piece of cake, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds after, like a piece after of cake. lifestyle you were like living. After yeah, absolutely. And so I I you know I, my father-in-law who had been on this path for for he's been on this path for 40 50 years, long time. Um, never has ever tried to push. You know, I, I've been in his life since I was 15. So he's never ever pushed or he's always been just a light, just an amazing, amazing example of what a father or a father-in-law and a man should be. And so so he come he, he comes to your house with the press and you unwrap the the paper and inside the t-shirt says and got ayahuasca. <laughs> got ayahuasca. Got ayahuasca time to. Yeah, pretty much. And so he says, you know, I think that um, you know, it's up to you, but if you're ready, you know, And at the same time, I didn't know much about it. We knew that he was traveling to South America, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, and he was doing something. We just didn't know what it was, really. And at this moment, whatever that was... Was he always coming back with suitcases full of, like, some white (laughs) dust kind of thing? Suitcases full of wisdom (laughs) is what it was, you know? (laughs) Suitcases full of knowledge and wisdom. And and I, I just said, yeah. I said, yeah. And... You know, I'm just so happy that I said, yeah, because that that really is what, what changed my life. Meeting meeting my master, my teacher who um, who gave me the medicine to drink, you know. So you went you went down to South America to, to South America. Peru, Peru. Yeah. And you drank ayahuasca for the first time. Yeah, I went to Pucallpa, took a, a little trip down to South America. Um, never been anywhere like that by myself at that point. Uh, and I went to live in solitude in the jungle by myself um, and, and drinking medicinal plants and experiencing true life and, and true nature. And so I, I went down there and um, got, got there and, and, and got to the land, which is, you know, it was, it was 500 acres of land in, uh, in deep in the Amazon. And... And I lived in this little thing called a tambo, which is like a 10 by 10 foot piece of wood that's two, three feet off the ground with a palapa roof and no walls. And then this is where I started learning. This is where the education of life began. And, you know, I know right now, and even it didn't take long for me to figure out that, that my mom took me there, that her energy, you know, when she left the body at that moment, I knew that. Her, her spirit had left the body, but what I didn't realize was that it had merged into everything else. And that's the discoveries I went to make in the jungle, you know, drinking ayahuasca and starting to learn about life, starting to learn who, who I really was without the masks, without any, any, any face there anymore, just everything just disappearing, removing all the layers, peeling away all the things that I had built up since I was born, 
pretty much. All the things I had seen, all the visuals that were impacting me, all the things that were subconsciously being imprinted, all the, the words I had heard, all the graffiti I'd seen on the wall, all the street life, all the drugs, all the music, all the thing, all the things that I thought was life were just imprints. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because they're other people's imprints. And then that's what you call life. It's other people's imprints and then you call it life. So, so I went and and purged all this stuff out. I purged all this imagery out. I purged all these thoughts and views and, and, and guilt and things that I thought, you know, I just everything, you know, I just released all of it. And I remember, I remember just sitting in the jungle with ants on my arm, walking across my arm. And I remember just sitting there naked. I was naked and, I was, and my feet were in the mud. It just rained like super crazy for like six hours. And I was just sitting there absolutely in stillness, listening to the birds talking, listening to the wind, hearing the leaves, and seeing how everything was synchronized and how everything was dancing and talking together. And I realized that that was life and that I was finally hearing the truth. I was finally seeing the truth and I was finally feeling the real me emerging again. And so, yeah, that, that was the beginning. So my mother's death, you know, my birth from my mother is the first spiritual awakening. And then that was my mother's death, I think, was my second deep spiritual awakening. So that helped you to tune into the natural rhythms that most people are completely off. Correct. I started noticing the beauty that, you know, you notice, but you, you don't, you don't, you're just walking by it all the time, you know, and, and it's, it's through stillness that we, that we find it. And when you're in this world, that's not still and everything's moving. It just, it's, you're just not noticing it, you know? And um, you've, you've done this stuff now many times. At yeah. What's, what's, what's your take on it? My take as far as what it does for someone or no what's your your take on it i'm i'm asking you because i, I find it and i respect everybody's journey but also i have um observing when something sort of becomes a um when you become dependable of certain outside because and this is a long discussion but the idea of all these methods ultimately is that these methods are there to self-destruct Meaning like you talk about natural rhythms, right? So most people are completely off rhythm with the natural rhythms. But once you get in tune with that natural rhythm, once you, you, you merge back into that infinite consciousness or whatever you call it, once you dissolve yourself into that infinite consciousness, then the method should self-destruct because it's just something that you use to experience that sense of oneness or whatever you call it. But when it becomes dependable of like, I have to do this every month, every year, I got to do it all the time. Um, and also seems, and I don't know, that's again, personal take. I can only speak from my own experience. I've, 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 I've experimented with a lot of things and among that I experimented with ayahuasca a couple of times. And my realization has been always the same, which is the plant is not saying anything to me. There's nothing outside of me because there's no outside of me i'm part of it 
the only thing that this is doing is facilitating what like intense years of meditation facilitates, which is only for a moment unveiling or removing the, the whatever is covering my own luminosity, my own connection to the whole spectrum of life. So the only thing that this is facilitating in the moment is the possibility to tune in, which it's really powerful. I understand the power and a lot of people have had major realizations, major awakenings. Uh, people with addiction have had uh, overcome addiction through this process. And I see how handy it is. But when does it become then, right, something that you depend on it and it's all about like this illusion. It, it turns into an illusion that the plant is talking to me or the plant is telling me. Um, so what's your take now on this ayahuasca? That, that is a beautiful, beautiful question. I love it. It's a, it's a actually really important question, I think, because um, I'll share this real quick. I remember being in the jungle and when you drink the ayahuasca, you come together. There's other people that are living in solitude with you and you come together. And there's about 16 of you that come together for the ceremony. And then you separate. You all walk back to your place. There's no talking or anything like that. I remember, like, the second ceremony was a really hard ceremony. It was really, it kicked everybody's ass. It was just really hardcore. Like, everybody was like, whoa. And I remember one woman who was there. She was Indian. She was from India. Uh, maybe Indian descent. I mean, she might have been from New York, but Indian descent. Um, and she didn't have a rough journey. I remember looking across and seeing her quite pleasant. I remember when it was over, everybody could barely move, and she just got up and walked out like nothing. I later found out that she was a vegetarian. Right? And so I bring this up because it's interesting because I'm bringing up the levels of consciousness connected to awareness, Right? So there's levels of consciousness connected to awareness. You're aware here, and then you're aware here, and then you're more aware. And so to me, that was one little awareness that I said, you know, oh, she's a vegetarian. So we're purging. Wow. Before we can even get to a place of processing something, I have to physically purge out chemicals and things that my body has been ingesting just to, just to even get maybe to where she's at. She's walking in like that because her consciousness and the way she was raised is differently. Already she inherited probably from her family the vegetarian diet. So she was already physically in a different place. There was a different awareness that she had coming into these ceremonies than I had. Not that we, not that, you know, our experiences are even to, to match up. We're completely separate people doing different things and walking different paths. But that it's I a was very different. That. It's a very different frequency. Very different frequency, right? And so... And I, 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 I noticed that. So that's, that's, that's one thing, right? And so that brings me to say this, that and this is also where you come in, Mr. Salcedo. So I come I, in. This is, this is the part of the play where I come in. Entering stage left. Andres Salcedo. <laughs> so here I am in the jungle drinking ayahuasca and this is 2008 drinking ayahuasca and many many ayahuasca journeys came back home continued the process of drinking ayahuasca so i went to the jungle and had this 
deep awakening of, whoa, I need to change everything about me. I need to change who I am. As a matter of fact, I went to the Amazon as a hip hop artist. I remember, you know, I said I had the, the Spanish CD. I remember showing up to Peru with 50 CDs. I had 50 CDs that I was going to give to cab drivers and this person and that person because it's in Spanish. I remember giving a few out on the way into the jungle. And I remember when I came out of the jungle and I went to my suitcase and I opened my suitcase. The very first thing I did was I opened the suitcase. I grabbed about 43 CDs and I put them in the trash can. <laughs> and I didn't think twice about it. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I, I, it, I relate to it. Um, I used to be a, a big uh, fan of uh, Che Guevara's work because all about the fighting for for inequality and try to bring you know the the poor the the one that is doesn't have bring everybody into the same place and given. Um, so those aspects I were very fascinated by it. So I used to had um, this patch of Che Guevara on my jacket, and the first time I did this this very deep. Um, journey of many, many, many days of meditation and I don't go into details, but as soon as I came out of that, two weeks after, one of the first things I did is I ripped apart that patch of <laughs> Che Guevara because I didn't want to have anything to do with with ways of, you know, violence and yeah. all that stuff. I was like, that's not... And so that's exactly where I was at. Coming out of the jungle, I had seen my ways. I, I realized, one of the things I realized, and, and it was the, you know, like you said, it's the medicine is invoking this, right? It's my own consciousness taking it in and, and, and doing what I want with it. But the medicine is invoking this and bringing this to, to the surface. And so here the medicine is bringing to the surface my music. Oh, you like this music, huh? <laughs> this right here, what, what are you saying here? And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what are you saying here? Whoa. And, and one of the things that I was shown or that I saw was that here I'm putting words together into phrases that ultimately is a combination of a vibration. And then I package this little vibration up and then I just kind of implant it in kids' heads, right? And that's what, that's what you're doing with anything you're doing. You're Im Im imprinting things in people. So here you're a parent and you're raising your child to be a certain way. This child comes along and hears my music or somebody else's music and now is deeply influenced by that music. It doesn't mean it's a positive or a negative influence. The person's just influenced, whatever that is, you know? And I realized that that's what I was doing, that I was now, that the words that I was speaking were, had more power than I thought and that it could shape and mold somebody's life. And at that moment, I was like, whoa. And the medicine itself, while in my journey, told me that I had to stop immediately. That that which I was doing with the music, freeze, now, stop, done. And I got the message. Another message that I got was, you know, that music is, is to be thrown away and, and you're to turn around and walk in a different direction. So I did. So I, I came out of the jungle, threw those CDs away. I, 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 not only that, but I come out of the jungle. Um, I start still drinking ayahuasca here in the States. And, and, and I'm now on the spiritual path of this medicine. Right? And this medicine is healing me. It's bringing things to my attention that, that need to be, that need to be uh, focused on, things that need to be 
uh, change. Things that need to be need to be transcended. It's bringing it. And here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. I'm looking at it. I'm watching it. I'm observing it. I'm changing the things about my life. I I now no longer really associate with the people I used to associate with anymore. I'm now more of a homebody. I'm now trying to uh, manifest and, and uh, positivity in my life and whatever that is. I'm kind of starting over and I'm about 30 years old and I'm like starting from scratch kind of, you know? And so here I am trying to manifest new things into my life. And, I'm, I, and, and, and then it's about 2010 and I go back to the jungle in September of 2010. I'm, I'm back in, in the Peruvian jungle back to do another dieta. It's called the dieta when you go and, and you change your diet a little bit, you, you know. And, and so here I come back to the jungle and, and I'm drinking ayahuasca. In the first ceremony, I, I, see, I see something I've never seen before. And, and this visual, this color, this thing that I see tells me, you know, shows me a cow. And it tells me, you know, don't eat this animal. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm Mexican. I grew up eating carne asada like my whole life. And so I'm like, what, what do you mean? Don't eat this animal. And I'm like, huh? So I'm, I'm trying to process what this means. Don't eat this cow, you know? And, and this was the beginning of me not eating meat, you know, leaving that behind. This, 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 this energy that's giving me this, this, uh, this awareness and saying, hey, look, at the same time, this energy is telling me, you're, what are you doing? Who are you seeking? Are you looking for your mom? <laughs> See, I'm drinking ayahuasca and I feel like I'm on the right path. And now this, now all of a sudden I'm being asked, who are you looking for? Because she's not, you're not going to find her where you think you're looking for her. She's in this now. She is this now. She is this nature. She is these trees and she's here, you know? And so at this point, I'm like, whoa, what, what am I chasing? You know, what is it? So in the same ceremony, this energy that's speaking to me tells me that now I have to find yoga. I don't know what yoga is. I, have, I don't know anything about it. I went to one yoga class long time ago with my wife, you know, in like, you know, I don't know, 1998 or something like that. You know, I don't really know anything about this. And here I am in the middle of the jungle drinking ayahuasca and something's telling me that I need to find yoga. And I'm like, huh? What does that mean? What, what do you mean find yoga? I, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't understand what that means. So here I leave the jungle and I'm kind of in a place of confusion because now for two years I've been on this path where I feel like, but now this thing is telling me to find yoga. And it's telling me to find yoga because at the same time it's showing me that I can't drink ayahuasca my whole life. It's not, it's not sustainable. You, you can't. I, it, the medicine is showing me that the medicine is for awakening. Boom. But then you need to sustain that. You need to sustain it in this world or else it disappears. Whatever you see, whatever you're shown, Whatever you've seen, whatever you've shown, whatever you've seen and whatever you're shown, it makes a huge impact and it will change you. But if you don't have tools to sustain that vision, to sustain those principles that you're being shown, then it will dissipate. It'll disappear and you'll become the same you again. 
you'll just go back to the same stuff and it's very subtle and it just happens. And before you know it, you're just back. And then it's time to go drink ayahuasca again. Then you go drink ayahuasca and boom, you have this great vision. You know exactly. And then, but you're not sustaining it. So yeah, it, there's this huge impact that happens when you, when you drink ayahuasca, when you, when you eat, eat mushrooms, when you do any of these things, especially in a ceremonial ambiance, in, in a ceremonial environment where there's a facilitator, a shaman, preferably a shaman, or at least a facilitator, you know, someone who can guide you in, in your thing. And so these things, it's my understanding now where I am, where I'm sitting now, it's my understanding that these powerful medicines, these things of nature that are sitting there for us to use are also to be respected. And they are to be used for awakening. And then we need to, we need to have, once we do that, there's a responsibility that comes with keeping that awakening going by putting in the effort, you know, putting in the effort that it that it's going to take to physically put that into effect in this world, you know, because I can sit in the jungle with ants walking across my arm all day and be in bliss with my feet in the mud naked, just sitting there. But what about when I'm on 20th and Pico or, 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 you know, or in the parking lot, you know, and somebody's honking at me, you know, like, what then? How do I sustain that? So there has to be tools. So that's where this, this medicine gave me information about yoga. Yoga. Find yoga. So I come home from the jungle in 2010. You know, what I shared with you right now and, 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 and a lot more I share it with my wife. And I tell her, listen, I'm not going to rap no more. And we need to find yoga. And she's like, what do you mean you're not going to rap no more? This is what you do. And I'm like, not anymore. And... And I say, we got to go find yoga. And she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, we got to find yoga. So we start going to yoga studios and we're trying to find yoga. We're like, where's yoga? We go to yoga studios and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be dead honest with you. I was not happy with it. I remember going to the first yoga studio and I remember coming out and she's like, you feel good? And I was like, yeah, I do feel good. I did feel good. And then 20 minutes later, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to come back to this class. though. And I was like, kind of like, I don't know. I'm a little sore already. And, and then the next day I was like, oh boy, I don't know if this is for me. That's like my first few experiences going into yoga classes and, and, and trying to meet teachers. I went to one class where, you know, here's like my third yoga class and I'm in a yoga class. And then the, the instructor comes up and uses me as an example for what not to do. You see this guy's <laughs> arm? It's too low. You see this guy's leg? It's too low. You know, he used me as his example. And that made it even more, more frightening for me to, to, to go back to yoga class. So I remember... Wait, you have a, a yoga instructor that came and uses you as a model? <laughs> what not to do? Model. Wow. Okay. And then I, 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 I um, you know, we get home and I remember just telling my wife, I said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to any more yoga classes after that, you know? And she was like... She kind of got it. She was like, you know, I was kind of messed up, you know. And she was like, you know what? I really love it, though. I'm going to keep going. And I said, all right, cool. And so that was amazing because here I, I, I was given this deep message. And then I just stopped. Like, oh, okay. I, I can't find it. You know, so where's like, you know, where's my connection to that thing, right? But here my wife, here, but here the energy moved over to her. So now she's going to yoga studios. And she's practicing. And then she comes home one day and she goes, hey. And I said, yeah. She goes, you ready to go to yoga? And I'm like, no. And she's like, I found what you're looking for. And I said, really? And she said, I found what you're looking for. You got to come with me. You got to come with me. And I said, 
Okay. So then here we go. A couple of days later, whenever that was, we're going, we're going to, um, you know, and remember, I, I, I don't have music in my life anymore. Music was my thing. And now I just, I've given it up. It's gone. You know, it's been months now. I haven't, I don't even listen to anything anymore, you know? Uh, and so going to this yoga class, this big room, and there's a bunch of people in there, you know, there's 50 people sitting in there. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people in here. I'm like, gosh, why is there so many people in here? I got to yoga studio, there's like four people. Now I go in, there's a bunch of people. And then I was like, and I saw the teacher walk in and sit down. I said, well, this guy must be good, right? And I'm like, wow. So there I am, you know, we sit there and this was your yoga class at uh, Santa Monica Power Yoga on 2nd Street. And I remember going in there and God bless Alana for, for taking me over there. Premaji, because um, that that really changed uh, my life, really, really did. I remember, I remember seeing you. You had dreadlocks at the time. You had long, long dreadlocks, and I remember you walking by, and you were kind of you'd make your rounds. I saw you kind of going around, and you were kind of walking by people. And, hey, what's up? You know, da da da. And you came by me, and uh, and then I, I, you're like, hey, what's up, bro? And I was like, hey. And then you just walked by, and I was like, oh, he's cool. And then you started teaching the class, and. The physical aspect of it was extremely challenging. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a hard class. The physical aspects of it were challenging. You know, um, I, was, I wasn't used to doing these poses and these things. And we were holding things for a little bit longer. But what really, what really was penetrating my soul was what you were saying. The things you were saying were different. And immediately, immediately, I can't even explain it, immediately... That class turned into like an ayahuasca session and I felt like I was in the jungle and I felt like you were the shaman and I was in the, I was exactly where I was supposed to be and that the wisdom that was coming from the, from the, from the jungle, the, the wisdom that was coming from my master, my teacher was now coming out of you and it was right there and it was very clear. It was very clear that you were to be my teacher. And, and from that moment on, I, rem- I mean, I remember coming up to you at the end of class. I don't, you probably don't remember. I remember I, I, me and Solashi goes, come on, let's go meet Andres. And we walked up to the front. You were like, and she's like, hey, Andres, how you doing? Remember me? You're like, hey, yeah, what's up? Yeah, I saw you the other day. And then, and then you're, like, you're like, oh, that's my husband. And then you're like, oh, hey, what's up, brother? And I was like, bro, I've been looking for you, man. And you just gave me a hug. You gave me a hug. And I remember, bro, it was like, this is so sweet. I just never forget it. And, and I was like, wow, man. And, and, and it was the wisdom you were saying and all those things. But in Shavasana, when we laid down, you played the harmonium. And when I heard the harmonium, it just, it just changed everything. And, and I knew that that's what Prema had heard. So my wife had heard too. And she heard the vibration. And it was that sacred and pure vibration that was coming out of you that was in line with what we were searching for and what was there and what, and what was meant for us to find. That, that's what was there. And, and, you know, both of us, we were just so happy, you know. And I remember, you know, we told you, we're like, wow, what kind of yoga is this? And you're like, this is bhakti yoga. This is bhakti yoga. We're like, what's that? You're like, that's the yoga of devotion. And we're like, what? We're like, what is this? This is unbelievable. 
And you said, if you guys like this, you know, we're, we're opening up a studio down the block, a Bhakti Yoga Shala, a Bhakti Yoga studio. And that, and that was the the Bhakti Yoga Shala. And, and, you know, you know, we were there from day one. Solana and I come into your classes. And, and well, not too long after that. Well, first of all, it's it's uh, always a great honor and pleasure. I, I I feel like Marianne Williamson says, I'm only the faucet where the water runs through. But my my intent has always been the same as yours. Like hopefully my lyrics can inspire and be imprinted in, in, in people's uh, hearts. And the most important aspect of it is to to be truthful in that sense. For me, it's always been a ceremonial aspect, not just uh, a workout. So I'm 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 always, in a way, great. It's, it's just a great honor to to know that that transcends in that way, and people are receiving what I'm intended to hopefully channel through through life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a great great honor always. I remember after that, you 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 guys came. You and Solana came to our um, weekend kirtan yes. camp, yes, uh, where you guys learned to play the harmonium right. and mantras, yes. and you guys did a, a great uh, 2011, 2010, 2010, 2010. You guys did a, a great at the end. Everybody kind of do their own mantra singing. It was beautiful, and then you guys took off from there. Uh, we. We did uh, 2011 in Maui. Maui, Maui no, no Kauai. Kauai. Kauai, 11, 11, 11, which is unbelievable. I mean, we need another, another podcast for this. That was unbelievable. And then and then you you guys took on in your own sort of like spiritual journey. Yeah. And uh, eventually you you became from, from Sat Ra, you became Rama. Yeah. It's like you adopted all this, this personas <laughs> I wanted to ask you that. What is this Rama thing you have going on right now? <laughs> well, Rama, Rama um, is a spiritual name that was given to me by one of my teachers uh, in India. And um, it's interesting because here I am losing identifications, but then there's another, I, okay, now I identify with this name. But, but the, the beauty of this name is that it's the name of God. <laughs> You know, and so if I'm walking down the street and I hear, yo, sight, (laughs) before I turn around, I can pretty much know what to expect already. If I'm walking down the street and I hear sight raw, I could turn before I turn around. I kind of know what to expect. You know, I, 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 these, I know what that person thinks I am. This person knows me as that. And so it it marks a, a place in time, right? where I was and where this person connects with me at. When I hear the name Rama, when people refer to me as Rama and I hear that name, I'm first listening to the name of divinity, right? Of the divine. And that immediately, immediately brings me to that place of center. You know, that brings me right to that place of of center and divinity. And it's like a responsibility. You know, it's like when I receive that name, and I accepted it. I also accepted a responsibility with it to uphold that name to its highest standard, to keep that name pure, you know? And so when I received, it's, it's almost like an initiation. Like, you know, when the ayahuasca tells you to find yoga and then you find it and you find the teacher, you're kind of working with that. And then everything that's happening is a lesson. Everything that, that you're, everybody you're coming across is a teacher, 
you know? And so receiving the name was just a different level of awareness that was being given to me. That's all it really is. It's just like, okay, now work with this level of awareness. And also, are you okay to receive a name and change your name? Like, you know, because that's another thing you have to think about. Are, are you ready to change your name? Are you ready to go by this name now and then have to explain that to people or not have to explain that to people? Like how, you know what I mean? Like if I accept this name, uh, now I have to tell, you know, my family members who are like, what are you talking about? Your name is this. Uh, do I have the energy? Do I want to? Do I have to, do I feel the need to even waste my time having to explain anything to anybody? So it brings different types of awarenesses and, and personal work into your life that you, you, I guess once you receive the name, you, you realize that and you start working with that because there's like different levels of awareness just within that name. And, and it's, so how, how I'm, I'm fascinated by all these things and, and I've seen that phenomenon happen quite often, especially in the last 20 years of Westerners. Uh, I mean, because I've been around that. Um, what is this doing to you in a sense? Like I give you context, for instance, uh, a Catholic priest goes into uh, priesthood or whatever that called, and they have certain things that they 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 have to abide by these commands. And one of them, for instance, is their natural sexuality. And as a result of them having a natural sexual, we say, desire of to procreate or connect, but by restricting that, by repressing that. What they're creating is actually a, 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 a hell for them. And, and, you know, we know many stories of, of priests that have abuse um, from young kids to many others. How is that plan for you in the sense of you mentioned now I have this responsibility. I am carrying the name of the divine. So I have this responsibility. How that plays for you in terms of like, just being a free, open spirit versus like, oh, I have to be careful with the way I behave and everything because now I have this this name. Sort of like, is that restricting you? How's that playing for you in your life? It's really interesting because I feel that what the name has done is it's caused, it's opened up a door so that I could find the purest things to connect with and to connect with that type of vibration more and to promote those types of things in, in all aspects, you know, in, in all aspects. Like, like I like wearing baseball caps, you know, ever since you've known me, I've always wear baseball caps, but look at the baseball cap I have on now. It says, Om Namah Shivaya. I, I couldn't find this hat. So I had to make it, I made it, you know? And for me, it's like, this is, um, instead of wearing a, a team, nothing wrong with being on a team, but instead of wearing a team, I'm promoting this so so in hopes that maybe i come across somebody and somebody says hey what does that mean sparks a conversation and maybe there's some a beautiful conversation there that can bring some sort of light to somebody's life kind of like what you were saying you hope that you're you know that you're being a pure vessel and so what the name rama does is it allows you to to become that vessel you know and to also work through your own things because none of us are 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 pure you know, we all have things. We all have a mind. As long as we have this mind working, there's going to be all kinds of things happening in there, you know? So this is where the sustaining quality comes in, where the yoga practice comes in, 
you know, and, and just to go back to the yoga thing, you know, the thing about your yoga that was different, this bhakti yoga, which is, it's beyond bhakti yoga. There's bhakti yoga was there, but it was beyond that. You had the, there was it, wisdom. that whole cocktail of so it's many. the whole things. cocktail of everything. And, and what so, it, so to, let me see if I understand this. So basically for you, it's like some people learn by watching others. Some people learn by um, trying to emulate by, you know, writing or doing whatever it is. Like we all have different ways where we use the context to learn or to apply. So for you taking on this, this name, one of the millions of names that we can give to that, whatever you call it, it, taking on this name is actually giving you uh, um, the possibility to sustain, to maintain, to have a direction um, rather than being like, let's say some people go and live in ashrams or live under the, the, the roof of a, of a guru or something that it's needed for them to be in groups and to be in that kind of environment to maintain certain kind of behavior. So for you, this is helping you to maintain that. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't live in an ashram. I live in Los Angeles. So that's, that is one element that keeps you there. Like a, it's a thread, one of the pieces, one of the threads that keeps you aligned with that lineage of wisdom. Right. And yeah. Um, you know, because I, I, you know, going to live in the ashram, like if you're someone who's going to go live in India, you know, and, and be there for a year or three months, six months, maybe that's what's needed for your life. Right. You need that kind of awakening. Right? You need to be there for that long. You need to to be there. You need to live there with the guru. You need to have all these things happen so that you can begin to to awaken or to sustain your 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 awakening. Right. Um, yeah, and that, that, that's very powerful in a sense that what you mentioned right now, some people have that tendency and they need to be among groups and things like that, uh, especially when you have. I believe like when you have this this self-realization, when you really do the work, you realize who you truly are. And in that, you might find that you need to be around communities or you need to be around these environments to continue um, ascending, moving on on this path. For me, it's always been the opposite. For instance, when I've been in India, many times I've been in India, I never ever been involved in any sort of the ashrams. I never, I'm always on the opposite. And the first time I went to India, they say, this is the most sacred river in the world. This is the most sacred this and that. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't feel it. I, I, I've been in many other places in the world where it's equally sacred and beautiful. Yes, you can feel the, the vibration because there's so much spiritual work going on there and then, then all this that is happening. Um, but for me, whether you are from India or you're a Native American or you are Inca or Maya, descendant of Chipcha in Colombia, <laughs> it's equally containing the same sort of like um, power and connection. That's where when you say about, and it's been, I was going to tell the story of maybe you heard before, there's a story where this great master comes, was coming into town. So everybody was super excited because they have so many questions. So this great saying, master comes into town. See, he sits on the top of the hill. And there's thousands of people right, around it. And he sits down, cross-legged, quietly. And they 
say, if anybody has any questions, please raise your hand. So thousands of people raise their hands. But the master, in the meantime, is just sitting there quietly. So they raise their hands, and the master sits down there for four hours, and nothing happens. He doesn't speak a word. He takes, he, after four hours, he stands up, leaves, goes away. Second day, he comes back. Same thing, four hours sitting down quietly. He doesn't say a word. But second day, half of the people who had their, you know, arm raised for question, now it's only half of the people. But the third day, there's only a few people. But the fourth day, there's no arms raised. There's no questions. And the master leaves the town without saying a single word, <laughs> which for me has been, and I can only speak from my experience, my path has been all about simplifying to amplify. I feel, and that's just my, my feeling. Right? I don't feel like I need to go around externally exposing who I am or this or that because it goes beyond that. So I'm always fascinated by, by what is guiding you to move in these directions? What is guiding you to expose these things? What is your purpose behind it? Yeah, very, very, very cool. Thanks for sharing that. It's very cool. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting because what you say is so true. When you're in a group environment, right, uh, with a guru, and let's say there's 100 people in the room, and then there's one master up there, and this person is, is just speaking wisdom, let's say. When that guru or that teacher is a real guru, a real mirror, then everybody in the room should feel like he's speaking to them, right? And processing it in that manner. And then that's why people are, have their hands up. And as time moves, the hand starts coming down because all the questions are being answered. All the questions are being answered. But this person is more than likely answering their own question or getting to a place where it, it became common sense almost. You get to this place where you're like, oh, yeah, well, let me just put my hand down. That, that's pretty obvious now, right? So it's, again, levels of awareness. Maybe when you walk into the room, your level of awareness is at the place where you think the guru is some cool guy that's sitting up there that knows everything, and that's your level of awareness. And as you come and start sitting with the guru, you start processing that the true master is within and that that person that's sitting up there has mastered that. And he's just showing you as an example. That, I mean, to me, that's the true master, the one that's showing by example. And then you're finding the way, you know, and, and you're able to cultivate your own way and you have your own realizations. And then you come to a place where it's like, you know, wait a minute. I, I don't know if I need to drink any more ayahuasca right now. I feel like, wow. You know, and that's what happened to me. When I got to a certain place, meeting you and starting to apply yoga, starting to apply breathing, starting to apply pranayama, kriyas, all these different things that I kept learning. The more stuff I learned in this world of yoga, yogic principles, yogic philosophies, yogic techniques, the more things that I learned of that, the less I felt the need to drink ayahuasca because I felt like the ayahuasca was presenting itself through this, through this wisdom and that this is the key. This is what the ayahuasca is telling me to do. Mm. When I'm in the ayahuasca, the message it's giving me is the same message that I'm receiving when I'm in deep meditation or when I'm, you know, coming out of a two-hour yoga class and I feel like absolutely connected to everything. 
that's all that's doing for me. And so by, by sustaining it with these things, these practices, I can reach that level of understanding who the guru really is. Who, yeah, and, you know? and that I think that the premises of, of what they call spiritual life or the, the journey or the path into spirituality because as we walk one step at a time, we have our own realizations. When we began the journey, we might have our arm raised because we have a lot of questions. We don't have that awareness. But as we progress, we start to realize who we truly are. And one thing that it's very important that we remember, it's the main difference between a guru and a teacher. A guru, it's the way. A teacher, it's only pointing you in that direction. That's right. And something that I've, and I've noticed because I'm involved in this contemporary kind of like, there was a, there's been a beautiful movement here in Los Angeles since 2000. Um, now has, well, right now is not even nothing because we can't get together in communities, but it started to dissolve in the last couple of years. There was a, there was a time when it was like a pick of this sort of like new, um, they call it sort of like spiritual community or conscious community. And it was all around a lot of the yoga and, and the kirtan, and what I start noticing a lot is this kind of a, okay, now we are this group of of whatever label they will give in, and our way is the only way. Our truth is the truth. If you don't sing the Hare Krishna mantra this way and this way, and you do this japa thing, this repetition, then you're you're not in our, you know, in the same group and you're not doing it right and that's not the way to do it. So it all became in some ways of it's the way I say, the way it's only my way. And I start noticing all this sort of like status that start to emerge from, from this, what it was supposed to be very sort of like equal, harmonious, we're connected. And then the status of, oh yeah, we are the, the ones that are selecting uh, we're the one who, who's choosing and we decide what's what's spiritual and what is not. And uh, we are this entity now. You have to have so many hours, right, yeah. to be qualified as this. So it's 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 been a really, for me as, a, as an observer, and because I've always been in it, but I've never been part of it. I never felt like, like you said before, it's for me it's always been a, a combination of so many different healing methods and techniques and ways to ascend and connect and all that. So it's not, I was defined as sort of like, thank God when I was a kid in school, I was a popular kid. So I don't have to try to make up with that now because I'm getting some power as, as a teacher, for instance, like remember those times when you used to come to our classes in the early, in the early 2010, um, 2004, 2010, our classes were like 100 people or more. It was like a boom of, imagine the kind of like what it does to your psychic and the power, the, the power trip you can get. If you're, if you're always kind of like the kid that was always bullied and girls didn't pay attention to you and all, and all of a sudden you have thousands of people just kissing your feet. Imagine what it, that does to you. Yeah. So as an observer, it's been very interesting to, to observe the sort of the process of the evolution. So that was... Uh, part of what I wanted to hear from you. What What is this Rama identity you're taking on right now? Yeah, that's very interesting. So 
you know, I think that um, simplicity, you know, coming back to simplicity, you know, so like with Rama, I'm, I'm not taking on any identity. I'm, I'm actually releasing the old identities that had anything to do with me. The, the physical, the names I was given at birth. Miguel, that's still my name. You see, it's Miguel Ramatores because Miguel, that's, that's the, the spiritual name that my first guru gave me, and that's my mother. And so that's there. That's not going anywhere. And so taking on Rama is saying that I now am going to identify with the purest elements of my life, and I'm no longer concerned with what anybody else thinks. I no longer am concerned with what anybody else feels about me. I am aware of who I am and what I want and need from this world and what, how I want to walk, and I'm going to move in this manner. And as I'm moving in this manner, I am willing to open my heart and share anything that can help or serve in some way to someone else to, so that they can go towards a path of happiness and joy. They don't have to come to a yogic path. Maybe that's not their path. But to achieve, you know, health, you know, through yoga, physical yoga, we know a lot about health. We know that it improves your health, you know, your cardiovascular system, your respiratory system. Um, we have, um, uh, we know about uh, Ayurveda. So we know about eating healthy, right? We know about mantra. I just want to insert there. I believe fully, 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 it's not the yoga, it's not the mantra, it's not the Ayurveda, it's the intention. It absolutely it's is our the intention. intention. Without, you know, my, 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 my dear teacher and guru, Rudra Abhishek, says that willpower is God. Mm -hmm. You know, we could think God is this, God is that, you know, the, mm -hmm. but he says that willpower is God. So that will, the intention can only come from that will. Right, the movement, the, the 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 movement and the direction of that has to come from will. So that when that will comes into us, that's God, and when we act on it, that's God. You know, and, and to me, so to me, that that little spark of of willingness or intention, that's the spark of of light. To me, that's God. To me, that's like I'm I'm in the right place. I got to keep moving with this. Yeah, I, I, I truly believe that it is it is the intention. The intention. And so in your intention right now, I see, um, I observe you through social media and also we get to see each other. Uh, we used to see each other more often in, in community. I see um, you and your wife, uh, how should I call her, Solana? Or Solana I'm, actually, I'm, I'm here confused with all that because I don't even know how to call people anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> You guys started to um, lead your own yoga classes. You started uh, doing, recently started doing some uh, retreats, taking people to India. Yes. And I saw beautifully, it's kind of like a full circle. I saw it uh, was recently that you released a, a track, Wired On. Wired In, yeah. Wired In. And it seems like for what I've been listening about your background and everything, it's kind of you went back to your roots, but with a whole new approach. Yes which is taking back to the whole hip hop, but using it in a way sort of like uh, conscious lyrics. So hopefully, and I'm just guessing the imprint you were talking about, you want to imprint people in their minds with positive uh, messages. That is correct. Yeah, I feel that um, 
I'm kind of, you know, working towards clearing the karma of whatever I had built before, you know, and just whatever I was rapping about before, if anybody received the wrong message, I, I'm now trying to provide the right message so that other ears can hear what I would consider is not, is not the way, but it is a positive message that can inspire the intention for you to find your way, you know? And so as I, as I've moved back into writing music, um, Wired In is a song that I just released. Uh, I have another song that I released just before that called Seer of the Field, which is a, a, a it's a hip hop song, but the, the title Seer of the Field is, is, is referring to Krishna, actually, the seer of the field. And just before that song came out, I have a song with my wife, Prema. It's a Prema and Rama, Shiva's collage. It's on iTunes, and this is a, a rap about Shiva. So the first song that I did when I started working on music again, the first song that I recorded, I recorded with my wife. It has the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, as the chorus, and then I'm rapping about Shiva and consciousness and, and what Shiva represents. So it's like an introduction. So I'm using the rap language to introduce um, something that I think is a positive force and that contains deep wisdom that somebody can look at and maybe it can reshape their life or give them a map or a direction. Like I didn't have many maps when I was a kid. I didn't have many. I was doing, I was figuring everything out on my own really, you know, and a lot of the things that were happening in my in my life was me just coming up with a crazy idea and be like, I'm going to do that. And then I'd go and try to do it. And then it kind of was working out and, and, I, and I'd get somewhere with it, you know? So with this music, um, when I gave it up, I, I heard the you chanting, playing the harmonium, and then we took your the, the, the kirtan intensive, and that just changed everything. It brought mantra into my life. It brought mantra. It brought a different vibration. And, and it brought something that I wanted to, it was like, whoa, I want to learn this. Like, I want to learn this more than anything. I want to know what this means. I want to know what this is. And it's, you know, and it's because, you know, because of you, Andres, that really I started learning about what, like, like you're the first person that, that, that introduced Sita and Ram into, into our world and into my wife and my world. And, and it's just two names, Sita and Ram. But the way that you presented Sita and Ram, the way that you would offer Sita and Ram to us, the way you offered Hanuman, the way you told the stories of, of the Ramayana, the way you shared this deep, deep love affair that's constantly happening, that's really a love affair that you're supposed to be having with yourself. It, this is where I learned it. I learned it from you. I learned from, from you. You... you, you you brought that into my awareness. You, you're the first person that told us that, you know, when you look at someone in the eyes, you should see Sita and Ram. And like, and if that, and if, like, I mean, really just, it sounds like something really simple to do, but when you really start applying this everywhere you are, you look into everybody's eyes and you see Sita and Ram, it's just so powerful because you're seeing divinity in the other person. You're choosing to see their highest self without any judgments, without any constructive criticism, without any thoughts or concepts or ideas or anything, you're choosing to immediately see their purest and highest self. 
And as you do that, you're truly just seeing that in yourself and you're seeing deep, deep love for yourself. And, and as you see that purity and that love towards them, you, you realize that it's you, that's how happy you are, that you're just full of love and joy. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the lessons because it starts with trying to see Sita and Ram in that person's eyes. But then it's like, well, can I see Sita and Ram in myself? Can I rip my chest open and see them in there? You know, how, how do I do that? So this is where the practices come in, you know, and continuing the process of going from being a Bhakti Yoga Shala and then searching for more and trying to bring more into our, our world. You know, we went, um, I think it was 2013, 2013 at Bhakti Yoga Shala. I think it was the three or four year anniversary of Bhakti Yoga Shala. And I remember being in there and the house was full and everybody was chanting and, you know, it's it really fun. And, and I saw you walk in and you came in through the door, through the front door. And I never really saw you at a, at a lot of events. Like you said, you kind of, you know, you, I always noticed that you were always doing your own thing, which has been a huge example for me. Believe it or not, it's been a huge example to, to know, honestly, Andres, to see this whole process that you're talking about the last 13, 12 years. I've been watching it, too. But I've also been aware of where my teachers are and how they're holding themselves and what they're doing. It's very, always watching my teacher. Always, 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 always. And so, you know, um, it's, it's so interesting because hold I was... Hold on, you say you were 2013, back to Shala, yeah, I walk in. So in 2013, you, you came up and you walked in and... I saw you come into the into the space and then this guy saw you look around and I looked over and I said, oh my God, Andres is here. I never see mm. him at these things. And then as I saw you, I saw you make eye contact with me and you went and you pointed at me and I said, oh, and then you kind of walked over towards me. You came up to me. I don't know if you remember. You came up to me and you whispered in my ear. The, the, the mantra was louder. It was, everybody was chanting. You came up to me and you said, have you seen the highest pass? And I said, no, what's that? You said, watch it. Watch it as soon as you can. And then you left. And Prema, Solana comes up to me. She goes, was that Andres? And I said, yeah, he just came in. I've never seen him in here before. Did he, what did he, did he say something to you? I said, he came up to me and asked me if I've seen the highest pass. And, I, and she's like, what's that? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not Andres. I am the Joker. I am Hanuman. Hanuman Andres. Mischievous. The mischievous Hanuman Andres. And so you left and I was just like, what in the heck? Andres never comes. He comes in, whispers something in my ear and leaves. That night, we had a Roku or something at that point. I don't remember what it was. I remember we went home and and we got home and we were, it was like midnight now. It was after the chanting. We're all excited, like happy. And we're like, ooh. And then, I was like, hey, wait a minute. What was that? What did Andres say? The highest path? So I go to Roku or whatever, and I was like, I searched for the movie, and there it was. And I said, oh, wow, it's about the Himalayas and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and I was like, oh. So we, we saved it, and a couple days later, the next night, we watched it. And it was this movie about India, this guy in India, this teacher, this guru who rides a motorcycle around India and, and is teaching people and this and this and that. And I, I thought the movie was awesome. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And my wife and I have been talking about going to India. We've been wanting to go to India for a long time, and we're trying to find somebody to go with. And at this time, um, you say that. 
We watched the movie. At the end of the movie, I, I noticed in the credits that I recognized somebody's name, the, the person who was in the film and had written the movie, my, my dear friend Adam Schomer. And um, he was the director of the film. And I, I said, wait a minute, I know that name. And me and Adam now, we've, we've filmed movies together. I mean, we've had a really amazing relationship. At that point, I had just, I had, I'd recognized his name because I had met him about a week before at a yoga studio that he owned in Santa Monica and that I had gone to with my wife to see Daniel Stewart's kirtan. He did a kirtan there that night, and we went over there, and it was at this little studio. We went over there, and... Uh, at the end of the at the end of the thing, we had already been chanting maybe a couple of years. We had done your, your intensive. We had a harmonium. We were doing our little thing, you know, Solana and I. And uh, and we um, uh, I see I see in the credits the name, and I'm like, wait a minute, I know this guy. We were just at his yoga studio. If it's the same guy, so I went to Facebook and I saw it's him. This is the guy. So I wrote him a message and I said, hey, bro. I said, you remember us? We met you a couple of days ago at the yoga studio. And Daniel Stewart introduced us. And he said, hey, if you want anybody to do kirtan, these guys do kirtan. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember you. And I said, I just, we just saw your movie. We had no idea that you were a filmmaker. This movie's amazing. And we said, we, we'd love to meet your teacher. When can we meet him? And he said, he'll be here next week. <laughs> next, the following week. <laughs> we're with him already. We're with Anand, our teacher, our yoga teacher. And we, we take a yoga class with him. And we went to a wisdom talk that he had later that evening. It was the 4th of July. I remember it was like a 4th of July or something. We did a wisdom talk. And after the wisdom talk, we were like, wow, let's go to India with this guy. So we went to India. <laughs> the next year, in 2014, we went to India. April of 2014, we went to do our first uh, official teacher training in, in India, and, and it was with, with him, and it was because of you. It's amazing, because I've also noticed the pattern of how a one great master leads you to another great master. It's just a pattern that I've been seeing. And, 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 and that also came from through you, through you. So that of us moving forward and, and continuing that was also because of you, it was it was a, it was something that you 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 don't come and whisper anything in my ear that night, and you know I I was not going to be in India that following year, you know. So me and my wife traveled to India, and we met our our, our Indian teacher Anand, who um, was an amazing amazing individual who happens to be in that film, and um, so in and he has a yoga academy in the Himalayas, and it's interesting because it's it's uh, it's an academy slash ashram type of, of, of place. It's a really, really beautiful place. And um, it's it's near Rishikesh. It's just outside of Rishikesh in the Himalayas and um, um, near the Ganga and all that stuff. And you've been to Rishikesh, so you know how beautiful it is. And from what we hear, it's the birthplace of yoga. So there's a lot of energy there and a lot of, you know, beauty and, you know, the all the masters, the great masters that we read about dwelled in there, you know. Uh, and walked in those forests and stuff. And so we we were able to go there, spend time in India. And uh, we spent, I think, one month there. And and we've gone back many, many times now, many, many times and, and studied there many times, took a lot of different courses and, and did a lot of different things there. And, and then, you know, what, after studying there, you know, one of my purposes was to try to 
utilized the yoga that I was taught by my teachers, being you, Anand, and then later Govindas, who also became my, my yoga teacher as well, and utilizing all these aspects that I was learning and trying to provide something a little different. So what I realized was that here I had changed myself from who I was, this like I was trying to move away from hip hop and not try not to even dress like that and all these things. And then I realized that I liked certain aspects of that. I like wearing a baseball cap. I like certain aspects of this. So I decided to allow some of those things to come back into my life. You know, I like wearing certain types of shoes, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not materialistic, but I like certain things and I like dressing a certain way. So I thought, why am I not dressing how I like? What am I, what is it? You know, and then I realized that I, I could be a bridge for a lot of people that are searching for something and they don't know what they're searching for. And immediately that started happening, you know, uh, sharing my life with others of what, who I was now and what I was doing now and what it was that I was involved now and how I was traveling the world doing so many different things. That started to trickle over and, and people started calling me. People that hadn't called me in a long time started calling me and saying, hey, what? I've always wanted to know about yoga. I mean, I got hardcore gang member friends, gangsters, tattoos on their faces who are calling me. They want to know how to meditate, you know? And, 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 and I think that by me placing myself there as a bridge, it, it, it provides a service for someone who recognizes me as a bridge, but may not recognize somebody else as a bridge because they can't relate to that maybe. So by me becoming a bridge, they're like, well, there's my boy. He wears a hat like me. We grew up together. He's doing yoga. I'll learn yoga from him. Or maybe he'll teach me how to meditate. You know, and that, that right there, that I, I've started finding like a, not a niche, not, not because I, I, I will offer what I, whatever I know to anyone. But I started realizing that, wow, this is a really beautiful way that I could be of service to people that, that don't know what yoga is. It's never the word. They've never even heard the word. They don't know what it is, you know, and let alone truly what it is. You know, when I started studying yoga with you, I really started learning that it was beyond warrior one. I, I realized it's not just downward dog. There's this whole thing. There's this, you, yoga is a way of living. It's, it's how you live your life. You know, you're a surfer, right? And there's when you're riding a wave, what's the difference between riding the wave that's not yoga? What's not yoga about riding that wave? Oh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> we have we have material for many, many podcasts in that sense. But listen, uh, just by hearing your, your story, it, it's just beautiful to to um, to observe the the evolution, the transformation. And I think especially in this, this spiritual paths, uh, it's just it's just gonna happen. We we feel attracted by certain things that we adopt in some some aspects in, in, in our lives in some moments. And maybe we go back to realize I don't have to do this, I don't have to be like that, I don't have to stop wearing things that I love, because ultimately we are being given this incredible vessel. And this idea that the material has to be given up and it's bad and and it's going to get in the way of your evolution for me it's completely uh just just like there's a new new world and in this new world we 
can use this vessel and all the material things to create beauty, to inspire. And like I just saw recently, which if you haven't seen it, highly recommended the Walter Mercado, oh. uh, Mucho Mucho Amor, a, I, um, I the it. documentary. And because he was so, you don't know if he was a, a, a man, a woman, and you, and all the capes and all the makeup and all this stuff. And then he says, people like that stuff. People connect with that. So why not play with it? Yeah. So in that sense, it's, it's, it, it is pretty common. Uh, we, we feel attracted. We're looking for, a, for an answer. We have this void. We, we connect and we start going in certain ways. But the beauty of the path is like little by little, we, we must start going back to, to our roots and what we really um, enjoy without measuring or labeling this is spiritual, this is not spiritual because ultimately everything in life is spiritual and this material experience is a beautiful experience to to enjoy beauty, to inspire and just with the understanding that we're not defined by that. It's yeah. uh wow. It, it it's been it's been um I mean we can keep keep going for, for a long time. But just just to close a good moment now, we have to close the conversation. Where where do you see yourself moving from from now on, especially after this this moment, um, this break that we'll have? Where where are you where would you envision yourself moving into integrating all that that you have? What do you feel that that feel that passion? This is what I want to do now. Well, I I you know it's interesting what you said about you know not giving this up and what's not spiritual when this because you know I'm at that place where you know I've been in India I've done the silent thing I've done you do all the different things you know like the Buddha the Buddha went around and did all kinds of different things and then at the end of it he's like you know what I'm just gonna sit right here and meditate you know and and so it's um it's really interesting because at this point in time you know I'm at the place now where it's not about one thing. It's like, I, I don't feel like you have to have like one career or, or I have, this is what I'm going to do with my life, or I'm just going to do this. I feel that everything is open. The possibilities are endless. We can do anything we want to do. And at this point in time, especially if, if you're not aware of what's happening in the world, this is like a blank slate that you can come out of right now. You can develop something. You can learn something. You can recreate yourself. As a matter of fact, the song that I wrote called Seer of the Field, it's about reinventing yourself. And, and that's what the whole song is about. And, 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 and I, I'm at the place where I want to use more of my music now to inspire people and to speak positivity and to tell people these things that we're sharing here and to take the wisdom that all of my teachers have ever shared with me and to reshare it back out, however that is, in, in whatever output that I can. And, and this goes for, for my wife as well. This is a path that we're on together. We are, are doing this together. And we, um, we plan on continuing to take people to India and to take people all over the world if they want to come and study yoga and learn what yoga is. And, and, and you know, it's not a one-sided yoga. It's, it's yoga. It's it's the works, like you said. It's all the different things, all the things we've learned, and 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 it's um, and that's where where I am right now. And I feel that um, um, this world right now where we are, there's a lot of 
you know, tragedy happening. There's a lot of people who are misplaced and, and a lot of misfortune that's happening a lot. And so I think that one of the best things that we can all do is to really, really come to a place of stillness, quiet, and just realize how much we actually all have, how much we've been given and, and how beautiful this moment is right now and how somebody else might not have what you have, how somebody else might be hurting, how it, it might not be the same for somebody else to find joy. So if we can be joy, if we can be love, if we can be light and, and we can carry ourselves like this and, and walk through this world like this, we, we, without any attachment to the results, you know, people will, people will, will gain from it. People will see that spark and it might inspire somebody. And for me, that's, that's all I can do in this world is, 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 is live a beautiful, positive life, try to be an example. And maybe just maybe that might inspire somebody to, to go deeper into, into their walk, their walk on this path. The master is in the house. Where people can listen to your music and under which name? So probably the best place to find me would be on Instagram. Uh, you can find me as Rama, R-A-M-A dot one zero zero eight. I also have Seer of the Field. And through my Instagram, that's where I post where, where, my, where my music is, everything that I'm doing that's, that's involved with yoga or, or BMXing now. <laughs> well, we, we make sure always that, that uh, we write down the side notes of the show uh, where they can find Perfect, you. yeah. And so I have a YouTube page, a, a Rama Vivo YouTube page. And the, you know, coming on to my, following me on Instagram and subscribing to my YouTube page, that's uh, uh, probably you know, the, the best thing. Well, my brother, like the sun says, you are a heart full of gold. Uh, no doubt about that. And to listen from your own experience and sharing your journey is very inspirational. And uh, like you said, you are in this world um, where you can inspire and there's, there's a niche, we can call it, of people that you connect And they relate to you and they can be inspiring. They can be introduced to all these incredible, incredible ways of tuning in with who we truly are to remove whatever is getting on the way for you to experience your own happiness, your own self-worth, your own love. So it's been really an honor and I have no doubt this is going to be very inspirational for many, many more. And like they say in India, Hasta la vista, baby. Ciao. Ciao. Uh, I, I just want to say one thing. Uh, thank you so much. The honor really is mine, um, truly, to be here with someone who I admire so much and someone who has really been a, a, such a model and, a, and a, an inspiration to me and to my wife. And, you know, I, I don't get to say it to you every day, but there is not one day that goes by where you are not in my prayers and my thoughts teaching me from beyond in some way you're you're always present and, and i honor you from this moment to the moment that i take my last breath oh um, well that's a great honor and vice versa 
always, always keep you in my heart, you and, and your beautiful lady. And I'm always sending prayers and good vibrations your way. Um, and last thing that I always like to remind all of the beautiful beings that come and share the experience, no matter what, please keep on serving lots and lots.